You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Nick. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm doing great today. How are you? I am not complaining at all. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Nicholas Diacopoulos. Is that the correct pronunciation? That is perfect, in fact. Amazing. Uh, and you are, among other things, the, the author of the book we're going to talk about, Automating the News, How Algorithms Are Rewriting the Media. You That's also correct. teach at Northwestern, where you run a lab called the Computational Journalism Lab, and, and you're also affiliated with uh, Columbia Journalism School, right? That's right. Yes, I am. So your book is about... Uh, how computers are influencing journalism in a number of ways. On the one hand, kind of on the production side, actually, you know, how uh, they're involved in content creation uh, and sometimes their involvement rises to the level of artificial intelligence. It's fair to say. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and sometimes uh, may pose questions to journalists about their future employability. Maybe you can address some of those questions. Um, and, and, and raises questions as well about, you know, kinds of uh, our value judgments eventually going to be taken out of the hands of humans and, and uh, you know, are we all going to wind up in the matrix or whatever. <laughs> um, then also, and I suspect this is the reason you didn't put artificial intelligence in the title or subtitle. Were you tempted to do that? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a sexy word, but, but the, the other half of the book will explain why you didn't, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, from what I've seen uh, in the media industry, um, there isn't too much true artificial intelligence happening in the media industry. Um, you know, the, the little of it there, that there is happening is, is very narrowly scoped and defined. Um, and so I, I decided to sort of steer somewhat clear of, of, um, of AI in the book and focus more on algorithms and automation um, and not get too hung up in, in sort of metaphors of robot journalists that are sitting at keyboards, you know, typing away and, and taking um, journalist jobs. And certainly some of the other stuff you discuss in the book, I think pretty much no one would call artificial intelligence, you know, just su- such as the way, although, although maybe they should, but I mean, they don't traditionally, such as the way that, you know, a newspapers tailor what you see to what you've clicked on in the past, things like that. Uh, I think they, 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 those things also raise important questions. Most people wouldn't call them AI. But you know, it's funny with AI. I think there's a tendency to keep, they used to say that AI is whatever computers can't do yet. You know, in <laughs> other words, the definition of AI would keep kind of receding because certainly if you had told me when I started out in journalism, well, someday, uh, rather than have a human read a, a company's financial report and write a story about it, they'll just turn it over to a machine, which basically is done now, right, by Associated Press. Is there any human oversight at all? Yeah, I mean, the Associated Press has been doing this for five-plus years at this point. I mean, Bloomberg has been doing this kind of thing for years. Reuters has been doing this. I mean, all of the, all of the major wire services are using automation uh, primarily for speed, um, because, you know, when you're reporting on, on earnings, you want to be the first one there with the information and mm-hmm. people can trade on that. Um, are there still people in the in the loop? Um, 
you know, at varying stages of it, uh, you could say yes. Um, you know, in the, in the early stages of it, uh, certainly there were, um, a lot of people involved with, you know, reviewing every article that was, um, generated automatically, uh, before it was actually published. Um, now more and more we're seeing some of, uh, the finance articles being, you know, fully automatically published. So, you know, the earnings report comes in and a second later, there's a, an alert on the Bloomberg terminal. Uh, that has been generated automatically. And that, of course, comes with time and developing um, some trust and, and some, some credibility of the technology. But also, there are still humans in the loop as backups, right? Mm-hmm. So if there's a failure in the automation uh, to, the, to the degree that the algorithm can detect that there was a failure or a mistake, there's going to be a human backstop there waiting to, to catch it. Uh, and, of course, that human is going to be a lot slower, uh, but at least you'll still have um, coverage of, of the thing that you want to have coverage of. So, you know, more often than not, we're seeing a lot of the automation and algorithmic systems in use in the industry uh, are hybrid systems, right? So they're not fully automated. Uh, they're, they're semi-automated. And there's typically humans involved at, at different um, stages of, of production. Mm-hmm. Now, um, in general, you are a non-alarmist about this stuff, I would say, right? I mean, in, in terms of both the That's impact fair, yeah. on employment and kind of the social questions raised. I mean, you underscore some social questions raised, but you're definitely, just as, as a kind of plot spoiler, you are not here to tell us that we're going to wind up in the matrix, I think. Um, no, no, not at all. And, you know, that comes, that, you know, I, I have a background as a computer scientist, right? So, you know, I, I've spent um, much of my career really close to the technology. And, you know, I, I just don't um, see that the technology is ever going to get good enough at the things that journalists are really good at, that they would be entirely substituting for journalists. I mean, there's all kinds of um, skills that, that people have in, in um, you know, interviewing and, and antagonistic interviewing, getting information out of people that don't want to share information. Mm-hmm. Um, all those kinds of things are 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 not things that we're going to see machines get good at anytime soon. Um, there's a tremendous amount of social context um, uh, in the world that's not quantified, that hasn't been digitized. That is totally inaccessible to algorithms. It's, what, do you, it's, what do you mean by that, social context? I mean, um, things that haven't been measured in the world, um, relationships between people, uh, things that have gone unspoken or that aren't written down uh, on a website somewhere that's uh, digitally accessible. I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, knowledge floating around in people's heads, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's why journalists, I think, oftentimes rely on things like interviewing to get that information out of people. Um, algorithms don't have any access to that, right? They don't have any access to that knowledge. And, um, you know, I don't really see uh, an AI system engaging in an antagonistic algorithm anytime, in an antagonistic interview anytime soon. Um, hmm. So those are the kinds of things that, you know, I don't but think there, are but there, I will say there are already bots, right? Social media bots that are antagonistic, right? I mean, they're, they're like troll bots. And I, granted, this is a pretty crude, it's a very crude thing compared to calling somebody on the phone. Uh, although, you, you know, you, you, I think you discuss, uh, I, I've heard you discuss the, uh, you know, this new, uh, uh, the Google thing that, that, that answers the phone at restaurants and makes res- and, and, and has a conversation that to the unsuspecting caller, 
might seem to be a conversation with a human being and, and even says, um, and so on. And so, I mean, if you look at, it does seem to me, if granted these bots are a long way from calling somebody on the phone and having like a, a good probing oral interview. Um, on the other hand, uh, the, the, the kinds of interventions they do make are often managed to fool the, the people they're, they're talking to. And so I, I guess maybe one kind of somewhat philosophical question is, is it just a matter of time? You said, you said that these things aren't going to happen in the, in the, anytime soon which, you know, makes sense to me. But are you agnostic on the question of how high up on kind of the brain chain the computers can eventually at some point rise? Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess never say never. Uh, you know, we've seen technology already advance um, to a great degree, you know, in the last couple of years since I started writing the book in early 2017. We've already seen great advances in things like... Um, statistical natural language generation. Um, but uh, I do think that there's some, some fundamental limitations um, that speak to, I think, what will be an ongoing role for people in, in the journalistic process. So, you know, this gets at things like expertise, um, common sense knowledge about the world, knowing what questions to ask and who to ask them to, um, uh, I think those are going to be very difficult challenges for, for AI to make headway on. Um, you know, I think the world is, is dynamic. It's a changing place. And the AI that tends to work well, the algorithms that tend to work well in news production processes are brittle. Uh, you know, they're engineered for specific contexts, you know, so there's one algorithm that writes the financial earnings story. There's another one that writes the sports story, right? I mean, they're all kind of like, tailor engineered for each domain. So, you know, when you get into like the wide open world, um, anything can happen, you know, sure. You can write a, a, a short sports article automatically based on the, 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 uh, the, um, scores and so on. But what happens when the roof caves in at the arena, you know, is the AI going to be writing, writing, writing that story? Uh, probably not because it has no model of understanding that, there's a roof over the arena and that, that could be something that would happen, but is very unlikely to happen. So, you know, I think you're always going to have um, or need to have people involved in uh, the news production chain to some extent um, right. for, for some of those reasons. But of course, if you, if you're somebody who's made a living writing up sports, you know, and I used to do some of this actually, right. You know, just, just kind of matter of fact accounts of sports stories for UPI, uh, if you're if you're somebody who does that for a living, it's meager consolation that a the particular like AI that's replacing you wouldn't do a good job on an obituary, and b that in the unlikely event that the roof caves in, there will be one journalist still employed whose job it is to write you know for the computer to call him or her and for that person to write the story. Um, so I, I mean, in general, you, you, well, you take my point, right? You can still, given all you've said, you can imagine, and I, you were probably seeing the displacement of certain kinds of jobs, which which isn't the same as saying that there will be a net reduction in the number of interesting jobs available to journalists. I mean, who knows? But yeah, I think what you know what I what I found in my research and and what I write up in the book is really that we are seeing 
a bit of a shift in the roles and the tasks that journalists um, need to be engaged with. So, you know, um, maybe we don't need as many journalists uh, writing those basic um, news stories about uh, sports results. Uh, but then again, there were a lot of um, soccer games uh, that weren't getting written up at all. And now that there is an automated system that can do that, there are short summaries of, you know, uh, every game, let's say. Um, but more so what I'm seeing is that AI and algorithms in news production tend to create new types of work. So there's more work. It's like you grew the work pie. Um, but of course, it's not the same type of work as it was before. Um, so now you have new tasks like, well, someone's got to gather the data for this system. Someone's got to make sure the data is clean. Someone's got to structure and define the data. So there's a lot of like data management type of work, data journalism type of work. Um, there's supervision and, and maintenance type of work, right? I mean, these, these things need to be kept up to date. Um, you know, when, uh, when a, when a corporation changes headquarters or merges, someone's got to update that spreadsheet or that knowledge base so that the AI, cause the AI system has no, has no metacognition of like what's going on in the world. So you need people feeding it, um, the, the, uh, the updated knowledge bases. And then there are also the people like you who write the, the algorithm. So if you look, if you look at the job picture in the largest sense, uh, there's that that you would add in as well. You know, you, you, that, so that's what you, I gather you st- got into this through that avenue, right? You did, you got a graduate degree in computer science stuff. Uh, it sounds like you spent a little time at a newspaper on, as part of a fellowship or something, but you never really, never really made a living as a scribbler, right? <laughs> that's, I mean, that's fair. Yeah. I, I did. I spent a summer as a reporter at the Sacramento Bee newspaper right. on a, uh, AAAS fellowship. Actually, interestingly enough, um, I'm on sabbatical this fall and I'll be hanging out at the Washington Post. Uh, they're building an engineering team, um, calling it the computational political journalism, um, uh, lab. And I'll be working with them on sort of a hybrid engineering slash newsroom, um, uh, types of projects to help support, uh, reporting in the elections, uh, in mm-hmm. 2020. That's an interesting place to be because, you know, naturally enough, given that they're owned by Jeff Bezos, um, they're, they're kind of on the forefront of this stuff, right? The Post. Well, I'm, I'm sure like the New York Times is no slouch and so on, but, but it sounds like, like one thing you mentioned in the book, um, which I actually found a little alarming, not, not for reasons of, uh, uh, not, not so much because of the jobs picture, but for reasons I can get into. Do I have it right that at the Post, uh, I mean, first of all, computers are doing sometimes like A-B testing with headlines to see which headline over a given story will get the most engagement. And then they use that headline, you know, for the rest of the day or whatever. It sounds like at the post, the computers are even generating the headlines. So, so do I have that right? They'll read the story and come up with several alternative headlines and then they will test them and then go with the one that wins. So my understanding is that that was a that was a research project that they that they engaged with. I I, I actually don't have any knowledge that that's in operation uh, kind okay. of on a daily basis. Um, you know, I I think that there are um, there are versions of that. Um, I'm familiar with. Um, I want to say it's Yahoo Japan is doing some automated uh, headline writing uh, where they kind of take the story as it's written and 
essentially like summarize it and crunch it down to a headline. Mm -hmm. Um, you can imagine crunching it down in different ways and then AB testing the different versions of the headline that way. Um, so there are, there are instances of this where it is in in actual operation. Yeah. And I mean, I, I said that this concerns me in a way, but in a certain sense it, it shouldn't. I, I mean, what I meant was that the headline that gets the most engagement is not necessarily the socially healthiest headline. In other words, there are headlines, you know, that are salacious or sensationalistic maybe that uh, might tend to intensify the much-discussed political polarization, tribalization problem. On the other hand, you don't need machines to generate that, right? It's like, I mean, look at the New York Post. Um, you, you know, I, I mean, going back before, you know, there was the, the, the World Wide Web was much of a thing, there have long been uh, humans who are capable of trying to appeal to maybe the less noble parts of the of the reader's brain. I think that's right. And, you know, we have some we have some new um, research in my lab that hopefully will be out toward the end of this year, or early next year, where we're collaborating with uh, Chartbeat, which is uh, the news, you know, a news analytics company that works with a lot of publishers. And we analyzed um, several hundred thousand A-B tests um, from hundreds of different publishers to understand which which headlines were working and which weren't. And um, the, the sad thing is, yes, uh, clickbait works, you know, that gets uh, people to click. Um, but the, the interesting kind of nuance to it is that if you look at whether or not people click and actually stay and read, the clickbait um, tends to work less well. So if you're looking to attract people to not only click, but actually mm-hmm. click and read through your article, mm-hmm. like clickbait still works a bit, but not nearly as much as it uh, works for just getting that click. So, you know, certainly we can imagine um, optimizing content this way. And um, I think the the important point that I would want to make is like, which metrics are we optimizing for? Because if we're just optimizing for raw clicks, then we're going to optimize for those super clickbaity things. But maybe we can optimize more for this idea of an engaged click and it, and it kind of mutes that effect a little bit. Um, but maybe also we should be thinking about optimizing for other types of things. Um, and this is a, this is an idea that comes up in, um, in chapter five of the book, this idea of the journalistic news feed, right? So, you know, we're all familiar with news feeds on Facebook and Facebook has a certain set of criteria that it uses to determine what, um, posts are showing up there, including, you know, uh, news posts, but also posts from your friends and so on. And they tend to focus on criteria like, is it getting discussed? You know, uh, is it being shared by a close friend and things like that? So that's all factoring into what you see on Facebook. But what if we thought about redesigning that news feed to really more um, fully embed notions of, of journalistic newsworthiness, right? I mean, what if we thought about, um, you know, what was interesting, uh, not only to an individual in terms of what will get them to engage, but what's interesting to their local community? Uh, or what's interesting from a public service point of view. Um, you know, I think that's kind of an interesting exercise is like, how do you build um, algorithmic systems to be a little bit more journalistic? And, um, you know, I was just talking to some folks over at the BBC earlier today, and they're really thinking really hard about this. Um, you know, they're, they're thinking about, you know, as a public service broadcaster, you know, how do we integrate those values that we have you know, things like universality, you know, we should be bringing people together. How do you 
get that into an algorithm so that mm-hmm. people are, uh, are, are consuming information in a way that's in line with your values as a news organization. So, um, I mean, I guess there's, there's, there's two questions. I mean, one is how would you get, uh, an algorithm to do that? And the other is, should human beings be focusing on it more, right? I mean, if they really wanted to do it, they could do it. I mean, it's, it's, it's in a sense, not a computer created problem, you know, because they could always just have more human intervention. If it's the kind of judgment a human can only make for now, they could do that. I mean, it gets back to the point I was making that, that the news game has always been about getting eyeballs, right? And, and, and compromises get made on behalf of that. So I guess is the conversation with them, I mean, I mean, is it that they're saying, wow, the world is falling, falling apart, tribalism is rampant, we need to be more high-minded? Or are, they, or are they saying, we're already pretty high-minded, and as we hand certain tasks over to computers, we want to make them high-minded? I think it's the latter. I mean, I think it's really this idea. I mean, you know, I, I, I can't really speak for BBC, but, I've, you know, I've, I've also talked to NPR about this, and, and they're also thinking about it. You know, they're really thinking about, you know, we're, we're public broadcasters. We have values and, um, uh, and we want to ensure that the, um, algorithms and, and AI that we're deploying, uh, is in line with those values and editorial standards. Um, so, you know, I think they're trying to do the right thing, uh, in terms of, um, uh, editorial expectations, uh, for their organizations. Now, you know, would a commercial entity have the same, um, sort of incentive to pursue that? Probably not. Um, you know, I, I argue in the book that I think uh, if commercial entities, you know, want to, um, if, if news entities in particular, if commercial news entities want to sort of own the news automation space, they should really be thinking more about how do we get those news values into the algorithm? Uh, because that, that I think is going to be what differentiates you from a Facebook or an Apple or you know, any of these other sort of non-journalistic um, curators. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing you, you mentioned in the book is that, you know, one, one choice that, that a lot of periodicals already faces, are you trying to optimize traffic or subscription? They're, they're not the same thing uh, as, as Google and Facebook have come to dominate the ad space. Um, you know, websites are finding that, the ad revenue model isn't working for them. And so they're more reliant on subscription. And, and here too, I mean, that in a way you would think that that would produce better journalism and it may, but it seems to me that um, especially in the political environment we're in, which is so polarized, a lot of the times the, the, the kind of implicit subscription pitches, Hey, we're against Trump too or we're for Trump too, you know, you, you mentioned, you don't, you don't say this, but, but it's interesting that you uh, do mention an example from the Los Angeles times where they, there was a series they produced and they thought it was well suited to optimize subscription. And so they didn't clutter it with ads at all. They thought we just want this to look nice. We're not looking for a, a little ad money. We're looking for subscribers. And the name of the series was our dishonest president. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. Seems to me you're seeing a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, um, I think the the way you play the subscription game is probably a little bit different than the, or maybe a lot different from the way you play the advertising game. And probably there's some game in between to play as well. Um, look, I mean, I think the the industry 
largely is, well, part of it is sort of in transition toward a subscription um, orientation. And I think they're still figuring out what that means in terms of, you know, what metrics do we optimize for and, and how do we find the, the best subscribers? I mean, you know, to go back to the AB headline testing example, I'm not sure anyone's really even thought about how do you optimize a headline for subscribers uh, or um, whether people are, are running those A-B tests, uh, but they should be, um, you know, because maybe there are different ways you would write a headline to try to attract someone to, to be a subscriber. Maybe. I mean, I, I mean, that would be an experiment that you would that you would have to run. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about uh, some of the cases where there's a kind of collaboration between uh, humans and machines to do kind of deep investigative reporting. Right. One example uh, you mentioned is a series that I guess the Atlanta Journal Constitution ran on, or at least an article, but it was a, it was a deep research project on doctors who actually have been. Uh, I guess convicted of sexual, uh, crimes, right? But are still, uh, are still practicing without anyone knowing that or something? What was the, what was the story there? Well, the story was that, uh, these were doctors who, um, had, you know, had, um, uh, you know, motions brought against them by medical boards relating to sexual, sexual misconduct. Um, you know, in some cases, you know, they, those, um, you know, motions were kind of, um, not necessarily overlooked, but just no action had been taken, right? So, you know, they still had their medical licenses and, the, and they were still uh, practicing. So r- really, the, I think the interesting thing about this story is that um, it started, you know, from a reporter who was reading through these uh, board medical board documents in Georgia and like read through 70 of them and or, or uh, read through some number of them and found like 70 of these doctors in the state of Georgia and was like, wow holy shit, you know, we have a bunch of doctors here in Georgia who have sort of haven't been dealt with um, uh, appropriately by the by the um, powers that be. And so, you know, where it gets interesting in terms of AI from there is, well, how do you take a local story in Georgia and make it national? Like, how big is this problem, really? Uh, are there doctors nationally that are that are still practicing, uh, even though they've been sort of accused of sexual misconduct? And so, you know, they had they had some data journalism, uh, data data journalists. You know, on this uh, story, they went out and scraped a hundred thousand documents from all the different medical board sites online, and then they trained a classifier, a machine learned classifier, to read through those documents for them, those hundred thousand documents, and basically make a decision: is this interesting for our, for our investigation, or is this not interesting? Uh, and of course there's some statistical uncertainty with that, right? You're going to lose, you're going to miss some documents that might've actually been interesting. Uh, but to, to, uh, to a large extent, um, to a great extent, they were able to kind of, um, filter down those hundred thousand, uh, to, I think it was about 6,000 that they then, um, had to read through, right? So of course this is a big investigative story spanning many months. They had, you know, people on this team reading through these documents, figuring out, okay, who are these doctors? What's the story here? What's going on? Do we need to look into this one more? They read through those 6,000 documents, and then they had their story. So you see this great, I think, hybridization between, yeah, that the the AI is playing a, a, a pretty small role in a way, um, but a very important role of taking that 100,000 down to 6,000, which is like, Still a big number, but reasonable for a team to read through um, in a few months. 
um, and you have an important piece of journalism produced as a result that you otherwise wouldn't have had. You would, you've, you know, you would have been limited to that um, local state of Georgia story rather than this national look at the problem. How sophisticated was the algorithm? Was it just searching for certain keywords or was it do, get, getting something approaching like comprehension of paragraphs and stuff? This was, this is AI 1.0. I mean, honestly, they're using a, a, a regression classifier. I mean, this is technology what, what that's is, been around. What is a regression classifier? A regression classifier is um, a statistical tool. Um, it's been around for decades. Um, uh, and, uh, you wouldn't even consider it AI. I mean, uh, you know, you would, you would learn this in like your intro statistics course. How does a linear regression work? Uh, and the way, it, the way it works is it, it looks at all the words in the document and each word essentially becomes a, um, a, 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 a feature, um, that this linear regression looks at. And if there are enough of those, uh, features that kind of line up, uh, then, Maybe the regression says, "Yeah, it's probably most likely this is going to be an interesting document." Let me ask you this: Did the did did a computer create the regression algorithm? In other words, did they show the computer a bunch of documents and say, "These are these are uh, pertain to doctors who did do something wrong"? Then here's a bunch of documents that don't. And 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 did the computer build the the regression? Uh, that, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So um, that's what's know. impressive. Yeah, and, and this the the broader class of of approach here is something called supervised machine learning. So you it's supervised in the sense that you're telling the computer, hey, this bucket of documents is the bucket of documents with the doctors we care about, mm-hmm. and this bucket of documents is the bucket of doctors we don't care about. And then it's learning the system is learning what differentiates those two uh, buckets of documents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard somewhere about a. Um... Uh, some sort of program where what they were doing, this was to, um, for people who were hiring, you know, they wanted to like uh, an automated filter of resumes. So they showed the computer a bunch of resumes of people who'd been hired, a bunch who hadn't. And then they found out that the compute, when they turned it over to the computer, it was being racially discriminatory, which of course was just a reflection of what the people had been doing. I mean, they, you know, that's, uh, but, but it was somehow more evident to them than it would have been uh otherwise because now you had the aggregate judgments of a bunch of people in effect being presented to you by the criteria the computer came up with yeah and this is a really important point right i mean um the data journalists the computational journalists that are working with these tools they need to be aware of those kinds of biases in the in the data sets that they're training these machine learning systems on um and they also need to be aware of the uncertainty related uh to uh, a machine learning approach. So, you know, whenever that uh, system says, yeah, this doctor is someone you should look at, this doctor is someone that you shouldn't look at, there's, there's an uncertainty bound there. You know, you can't, typically you can't be 100% certain of one thing or the other thing. So journalists kind of are starting to think about, you know, how do we adapt our evidencing process, right? It, like if none of this machine learning can ever be 100% sure, we kind of need to think through what that means for for statistically generated evidence. So a good example of this is um, there was a, a BuzzFeed story that came out a few years ago um, called the tennis racket. Uh, and um, the, what this about the gambling? Was, or- yeah, this is about, right. This is about yeah. uh, match fixing in professional ten- tennis. 
And, um, you know, what they looked at is they looked at, you know, the, 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 the betting odds at the beginning of a, of a match and the betting, betting odds at the end of a match. And they looked for wild swings in those betting odds. Uh, and then they sort of, um, uh, simulated like, what's the chance that this, you know, that the betting odds would swing this much, uh, over the course of a match. And, you know, if you like churn through all the simulations and all those statistics, you can kind of identify the matches and the players where eh, it looks a little shady. Like if Again, it keeps happening to one player. If it keeps happening to one player or if it's like a wild swing uh, in the betting odds over the, over the period of the match. Um, so, but this isn't hard evidence, right? It's statistical evidence and there's uncertainty. And so what's interesting there is BuzzFeed chose not to publish the names of the players that it, they had identified with that method. They just weren't sure. They weren't, confident enough that they were going to, you know, point the finger at these players based on the statistical evidence. So yeah. that's the kind of thing that, that journalists are having to kind of grapple with is, you know, if you want to, if you want to indict someone in public, you know, true accountability story, maybe the statistics are a starting point or they point you in the right direction, but chances are you're going to have to corroborate it with other forms of evidence as well. Right. Now, in the case of the doctors and the sexual misconduct, it's not such a big deal because, first of all, okay, granted, the algorithm may miss a few, but still, at least you're bringing to light a lot of wrongdoers. You, you, you can't be perfect. And because of the human oversight, it's not like some doctors is going to be unfairly tarred, right? I think that's right. And I think, you know, I think your question brings up an important point, which is like, depending on the story, you might have a different understanding of what the uncertainty means for what you're, what you want to write into the story. So as you said, you know, you have a strong human backup, uh, in that, uh, Atlanta Journal Constitution story. Um, you don't, you know, need to worry so much about, um, the uncertainty there because you have people checking it. And yeah, you just have to be comfortable with the idea that you're going to miss some stuff, but that might be okay because the story is still a, a, a very broad, uh, national look at the problem. Yeah. So uh, among other big stories that have also been facilitated in a kind of a comparable way, I gather the Panama Papers, which most people probably heard of. That's the name, right? Of the uh, uh, a bunch of documents came to light that showed how various rich people and corporations had been moving money around to evade taxes and do all kinds of stuff. Right. That 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 involved uh, a lot of computer help. Well, it involved some computer help. But what I think is interesting about the Panama Papers is there wasn't really any fancy AI going on there. Um, sure, they use computers to do optical character recognition, right? They have all these documents in a, in a, in a leaked um, document trove, and they've got to turn that into machine-readable text. Um, so you're able to use, you know, AI systems for that. But beyond that, it really came down to how do you build a platform so that all of the journalistic expertise, you know, they had more than 400 journalists collaborating on this to bring that journalistic expertise around those uh, machine readable documents to search through them and find connections and so on. So um, it was really, uh, there was really not too much AI involved in that. Okay. The, um, what about when uh, Wiki, WikiLeaks does a dump Our 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 big, you know, journalistic entities like the New York times, are they bringing much AI to, because there's a real race when that happens, I guess. Right. And, and speed is everything. Yeah. I think that's, you know, I think that's a, um, 
a way to be competitive with these kinds of document dumps is to be prepared with the technology that's going to allow you to um, read, you know, thousands of documents uh, as quickly as you can read in quotation marks where, you know, you're really setting the machine out to read and, and look for certain things and draw attention of human journalists to like, okay, look at page 34. That's going to be uh, something juicy there for you to work up. Um, so again, it com- comes down to hybridization of, uh, you know, putting uh, humans in dialogue with these systems in effective ways. Yeah. Um, so, one, uh, I guess a, a kind of uh, variant on, on what we've been talking about that you mentioned is a case where these, there's all these fact-checking organizations now, these fact-checking nonprofits, and I guess computers are sometimes used to help bring to their attention uh, facts uttered by factual assertions by prominent people. Um, and, and what is the, what are some examples of how that's used and what are the criteria for which assertions to, fo- is it just, this is a statement of fact or what? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a variety of technologies being, um, developed in, in this area of, um, automated fact checking. And, you know, when I say automated fact checking, the, these systems aren't actually able to tell you whether or not a statement is true or false for the most part there there is some some technology that's trying to do that i think that's a really hard problem mostly what we're talking about is um automated fact spotting so being able to monitor like essentially as much as you can monitor the internet uh, it would be the the reach goal there and just look for statements that are being made by um important people you know people who who we care to fact check and then um, identifying those statements as uh, statements of fact and potentially also ranking those statements in terms of how interesting or checkworthy or newsworthy it would be to, to, to really do that fact check. So the idea is that you would then bring that ranking into uh, a fact checking organization like a PolitiFact or Washington Post. Um, these are some of the organizations that are using these technologies. Um, and then a professional fact checker, a, you know, person is going to look through that list and say, oh, yeah, that one's interesting. Like, let's work that mm-hmm. up. Um, so, it's, again, it's this hybrid idea where the computer is doing the, the, the broad monitoring and then the human is doing the really kind of difficult, nuanced work of, like, what shade of true is this? I mean, is it partially true? Is it, you know, mostly mm-hmm. true? Is it totally false? Um, you know, and that, of course, requires a lot of contextual understanding uh, background research um, and you know everything that that um, these fact checking organizations are really good at. Um, so th- you know those efforts are are advancing, and I think um, you know I've heard positive um, positive uh, 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 things from uh, from fact checkers who are using those systems. I mean, look, you know it's 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 not about replacing journalists, right? It's mm-hmm. really about can we find the most important things to fact check today? And if technology helps you do that, and to some extent, I think it seems like it does, um, then, uh, then I think it's a win. Now, where you have to be careful is with these algorithms, you know, what are they really picking up on in, in these statements? You know, there have been some evaluations of these automated fact checking systems where, you know, you look at, okay, which uh, statements did it pick up uh, from Clinton? Uh, versus which statements did it pick up from Trump? 
So this is like a, a, an evaluation from a few years ago. And um, you can see that, you know, uh, it actually tends to pick up fewer statements from Trump than it does from Clinton. Uh, and, you know, what does that mean? Well, it, it probably means that the system is picking up on things like numerical figures and, you know, stronger statements of fact. Um, and Trump's rhetoric uh, is less prone to being, you know, um, uh, recognized mm. for those things. So the algorithm is, is less good at, at finding fact, fact-checkable statements from him. So if you're a journalist and you're just presented with two lists, you know, you have to be aware also that the algorithm isn't doing as good a job for someone like Trump and the rhetoric that he's using versus someone like Clinton. So again, this kind of goes to the literacy. If you're a journalist, you know, using Although, these types of computational tools. I mean, the algorithm's job is to find checkable assertions. You could argue it is doing as good a job in both cases if it found all the things that are, that are you know, concrete assertions of fact, right? I mean, that, or, or we need to rethink what does it mean to find a statement that should be fact-checked from someone like Donald Trump? Like, is his rhetoric different enough from other uh, people that, yeah. we, you know, we shouldn't rely on the same algorithm? Maybe we need to retrain a new algorithm that's more sensitized to the way that he's making statements. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Um, you know, I mean, so, you know, and there's other examples of this where, um, so another, you're suggesting it could be that there's actually a factual assertion embedded in his language, but it may be less straightforwardly put, and so the algorithm didn't pick it up. Could be, could be. I mean, it's a speculation at this point, but um, you know, these these uh, um, natural language understanding systems um, aren't that sensitized to different ways of saying things. Mm. Um, uh, you know, they're they're trained again goes back to like a supervised machine learning system they're trained on a set of data so if the set of data they're trained on is a bit different than the set of data that they're used on then uh you know your mileage may vary you might not have the same accuracy there Mm -hmm. okay so what are some of the things you're working on in your lab do you at uh, northwestern do you actually are creating tools that are used by journalists or, or tested by journalists yeah, we're working on a on a variety of of tools and also studies um, of of different um, sort of algorithmic um, uh, news um, platforms and so on. So, uh, you know, we're looking at, for instance, the algorithms on Google uh, Google search. You know, when you search for information, you know, they're showing you news information at the at the top of your search feed. Oftentimes, um, what type of news pops up there? You know, what is their algorithm prioritizing? Is it prioritizing news information on the left versus the right or, you know, more recent information or, you know, where is it coming from? So we're, we're doing those kinds of audit studies to understand how platform algorithms are mediating attention to news information. Um, I have another study actually um, that I just wrote up today for the Columbia Journalism Review, and we have a, a research article that's out um, looking at Apple News and looking at how they're curating news information. So, you know, they have trending news uh, and how is that different from top stories that their editors choose for the app? Uh, and you can certainly see um, that the algorithmically um, selected news tends to be softer uh, and, and more, um, you know, um, uh, I guess, um, uh, um, sensational in a way, I guess. 
Um, whereas the top stories, which are chosen by editors, um, tend to be more newsy, tend, tend to focus on actual policy issues. So mm-hmm. you can see kind of that divergence in uh, editorial versus algorithmic logic in the data that we collected. So we're doing those kinds of, of, of audits. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at things like A-B testing I mentioned, you know, uh, looking at uh, hundreds of thousands of, of A-B tests to see uh, which tests work well and which don't. Um, we're building tools to help monitor information. So um, the broad project I'm working on is called News Tips. Uh, and the idea is to kind of um, generalize out this idea of using machine learning to monitor the world for interesting stuff that's going on, right? Mm-hmm. So how do we use machine learning to provide leads and tips to journalists? Um, and well, what they, is the database being monitored? Yeah, so uh, we're starting out with a with a very kind of niche um, uh, uh, beat, if you will. Um, we're interested in in finding instances of algorithmic decision making in use in government. So this would be things like um, criminal risk assessment scoring tools that are used, uh, you know, in in, in the uh, in in the justice system. Uh, or it could be hiring systems used in government. I mean, the government has hundreds of these algorithmic decision-making tools that are in use in, in different areas. And so we're monitoring government websites every week um, automatically. Uh, so we go out and we scrape. We essentially do searches across all government websites, and we scrape all of the PDFs and documents that mm-hmm. mention dozens of different terms that relate to algorithmic decision-making. And then we have a machine learning system that comes through and scores them and ranks them. Uh, and then we have um, research assistants who read through those documents and add metadata and, uh, you know, assess, you know, is this actually newsworthy? Would, would this be interesting if we kind of did more digging here? Should we, uh, should we send this as a lead to a newsroom and that kind of thing? Uh, so this system is called algorithm tips, um, algorithm tips.org. And, and really that um, that site um, is a curation of that database that we have, uh, as well as a set of kind of um, resources and examples uh, for journalists who are interested in um, covering this beat of, of algorithmic decision-making in government. So it's not crazy to imagine a day when basically all publicly available information is being scoured by machines t- for potential newsworthiness and then presented uh, if it makes it far enough up the chain of, of assessment um, to actual human beings. I, I mean, because the, I say that just because once you've got the software, it's very cheap to replicate it and put it to work everywhere. I think that's, I think that's questionable whether or not, well, I think it's questionable how easy it will be to reg, to replicate in different domains. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. we're starting with the domain of algorithmic decision-making systems you know, we'd like to be able to then show that our system is um, extendable or generalizable to other domains. You know, that, that's, I guess that would be the next step. Um, but yeah, maybe in five to 10 years, we'll sort of be able to generally, we'll have like a general purpose mm-hmm. monitoring tool. Um, and I think it's going to be really important to be able to an, a, adapt a tool like that, right? Um, sorry, you you might see my cat jump up here in a minute. I'm it's happened fend, before, um, but don't worry. Big <laughs> crowd fend, fend her. Uh, we encourage it. Okay, all right. If she if she chooses to jump, then I'll let her. Um, so uh, where was I? I mean, I, I think it's going to be important to um, be able to adapt these kinds of monitoring tools. Right, different newsrooms might be interested in different things. 
searching for different keywords or different aspects of newsworthiness of these, uh, of these tips of these leads. Um, so figuring out like the right knobs to put on the machine so that it can be used by many different people in many different contexts. Um, I think that's good. That's sort of a, a research challenge for us that we're thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, you know, this is kind of a hobby horse of mine that's coming out of left field, but, uh, I'm very, uh, interested in international law and making it a more prominently, um, uh, respected thing. And it's funny, like right now, um, I'm imagining a day when computers are writing like pretty sophisticated stories and accounts of, you know, fighting broke out and so on. Right now, it's pretty rare for a journalist to really care which side violated international law. Hmm. Um, and, and, and you, and I would think that when it does come into play, it sometimes comes into play because of the bias of the individual journalist. So I would just like to see like an algorithm, like, you know, if it's your, if it's your team that committed the violation of international law, you might be less inclined to mention it than if it's the team that you're against. I would just like to see an algorithm applied globally that always mentions every time anyone violates international law. How long do you think I'll have to wait for that? Oof. Uh, I don't know. That's tricky. I mean, I haven't thought about that. Forever, is that? Yeah. (laughs) That's a tricky one. Yeah, that's a tricky one. Uh, But it is, I mean, it is interesting to imagine turning over to computers, you know, the the accounts of highly, uh, you know, kind of contested uh, sets of facts, you know, uh, when there are two competing sets of facts. It's an interesting question whether you could eventually develop computer algorithms where you'd say, well, they're going to do a reasonably objective job of this. Yeah, and I think it's. I, I think what I would add to this is that we shouldn't assume that an algorithm is objective. No, in a sense, I, 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 right? I mean, it's yeah. like it's going to be. You have to build it to be. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a that's a tall order because there's you know no matter how you build it, there's going to be some assumptions in there. You know, what is the algorithm paying attention to, and how does it weight this is this versus that? Right. Um, so you know, it's certainly uh, algorithms are objective in their execution. They, they will always be consistent in the way that they evaluate something. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're evaluating an objective set of uh, aspects. I mean, you of, could make them objective at least in the sense that they didn't slant the story depending on what country it was. You could, like, not even give them the name of the country, right? So they would at least have some criterion that is independent of the of the individual actors. We don't need to. We don't need to. Uh, torment this question but (laughs) but if you want to put it on your to-do list you could now all right (laughs) speaking of your um to-do list so you you designed a thing i don't know um how to pronounce this because it's a pun it's a play on the word anecdotal and yet the substitute for dot is bot which is bot so Uh it's either it's a new york a thing that was used i guess by the new york times it's either anecdotal anecdotal nyt or anecdotal nyt how do you pronounce it I pronounce it Anik Bottle NYT. Okay. So. so this was, as I understand it, a it gets back to the kind of social media bots, and you wanted to bring more attention to comments that had been left uh, under beneath stories. And so when it, when the bot saw somebody tweeting about the story, it would it would reference that tweet and 
and say, oh, and here's an interesting comment on the story. Right. Now, what was the criterion for, and, and it worked. I mean, there are cases where you got a lot of traffic for the tweet. Yeah. And it brought a lot of people to the, to the New York Times site to read comments. What were the criteria for which comments you selected to highlight? Right. So, you know, we were kind of interested in, in again, bridging um, what was going on on Twitter with with the comments that were being made on the New York Times site. So that so, you know, as the bot would respond on Twitter to people, it would select a comment from the New York Times uh, based on whether or not that comment was uh, referring to a personal experience. So was the person, you know, writing with personal uh, pronouns, I, you, we. Uh, and about, you know, using words that are kind of indicative of, um, their relations to other people. So we tried to pick up on like a, like a personal experience, um, signal in the comments. And then we also looked at the length, um, and, uh, um, uh, the sort of the, uh, the reading, uh, level complexity of the comment just to, just to try to find a sweet spot there. Um, and then we kind of like selected one of those based on that, those criteria and, um, the bot would share that back on Twitter. And what we found is that, you know, it was actually pretty stimulating for people. Um, you know, they would, they would respond to the bot. Um, some, some people would, would, uh, many people would react positively to the bot saying, you know, thank you. This is interesting. I didn't know about this. Um, some people I think didn't realize it was a bot, even though it was like very kind of blatantly labeled as a bot. Um, maybe they didn't look too closely. Um, there were a few people who were kind of like, what the hell, you know, why, why is there a bot randomly responding to me? And, you know, and maybe some of that comes from, uh, all of the bad, uh, bad bot press that we got in 2016 during the elections, right? There were, mm-hmm. there were a lot of bots that were used to misdirect people and, and troll them and so on. So, you know, this was kind of our attempt also to explore the positive side of bots. What could we do with bots on social media that would be kind of productive and interesting and useful for people uh, in terms of getting them to engage with with uh, with news more uh, effectively? Mm-hmm. Now, you know, and maybe this gets back to the the point that sometimes things designed to increase engagement can appeal to um, kind of tribalistic instincts. The uh, the example you give of a successful tweet. Okay, so the article was about Cassandra Butts, an Obama-era appointee who died waiting for confirmation from a Republican Senate. And the um, the the comment that got a lot of action begins, the Republican Senate is the single most unpatriotic and dysfunctional body I have seen in my lifetime. Cruz, Cotton, McConnell, disgrace our country day in, day out, and so on. So you, yeah. you take my point. I mean, it was a success in terms of numbers. Did you, have, have you given any, you know, we talked earlier about trying to instill high-minded values and algorithms. Have you given any thought to like tweaking Anik Bottle um, in a way that, well, either filters out language most likely to arouse, you know, tribal Instant, not that tribalism is always bad. I mean, you know, ideologies, if they're good ideologies, you know, it's good to serve them in, uh, with passion, I guess. But have you given any thought to uh, either either doing that, filtering out certain kinds of things or looking for things that suggest, hey, there's some real reflection on policy going on here or something like that? Yeah, I think that absolutely. Yeah, we're thinking about those things. And I think, you know, one of the things I'm I'm fascinated by and, you know, we'll see. Um, you know, whether or not the, the Washington Post is interested in pursuing things like this. But, you know, how do we um, 
get people to engage across um, ideological divides in terms of building common ground on social media. Can we still do that? You know, can we use common ground around common experiences to, to help bridge those kind of divides and say like, Hey, we're all people, you know, let's maybe try and moderate the the conversation here a little bit more. Um, I think these are plausible things to try with these types of curation bots. Uh, we're definitely thinking about it. I think there's a, there's just a huge design space of opportunity here. Um, and frankly, I'm hoping, you know, a lot of journalists read the book and say, Hey, you know, we can try that, you know, let's, let's try a version of this that tweaks the algorithm this way and, and tries to pull comments in, in a slightly different direction. Um, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of space to try different things here. Yeah. In principle, you can try to build a bot that would, uh, challenge people's opinions, but in a very civil, respectful, polite way and see if that leads to good engagement. On the other hand, then if you, if the people didn't know it was a bot, you'd raise a whole nother ethical question that you were involved in. But it, it, it would be interesting if if you could see, like, what is the algorithm for generating productive engagement with somebody who disagrees, right? I mean, I mean, books have been written about this from the point of view of humans who think they know how to do it. But it would be, be interesting to see what computer algorithm actually succeeds. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think... Um you know, this is a, this is an area where there needs to be uh, a lot more active research. There's sort of an, an emerging area of research um, called human machine communication. Mm -hmm. So this is the idea that, you know, when you have a machine that's sharing a message, how does that kind of shape how people respond to it? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, and there's some research that's kind of looked at that in terms of, yeah, people are more willing to, to open up and, and share uh, maybe um, socially um, uh, delicate types of things with a machine, you know, if they, if they think that a human is not at the other end of the line. Um, but I think there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity there to explore how humans respond to machines and react to machines or react to other people, you know, mediated through machines. Um, and really, I think we're just at the beginning of, of how this all plays out on social media. Mm -hmm. in productive ways, right? I mean, if we can get past the bots are always bad, bots are going to polarize, bots are going to troll, um, you know, we've got to start exploring some of the other more pro-social opportunities here. Um, but I'm optimistic, you know, I mean, you, you remarked earlier, um, I think that, you know, uh, the book is, is very much an optimistic look at what could technology do to kind of advance um, news media in, in a useful way for the public. Um, and um, certainly there are some, some downsides to the technology, right? But, uh, you know, we need, we need to kind of grab things by the reins and start steering uh, in directions that are, are productive directions. Okay, well, that's a good note to end on. Um, well, thanks for taking the time. Uh, the book, which is published by Harvard University Press, is Automating the News how Algorithms Are Rewriting the Media by Nicholas Diakopoulos. I didn't forget how to pronounce your last name in the last hour, did I? I'm still I'm two for two now. Perfect. It's perfect. Thank you. Thank, Thank you so much, Bob. I really appreciate it. Cheers. Okay. Take care.